This podcast is part of the C-Suite Radio Network, turning the volume up on business. Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey toward success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we're speaking with Eric Berry, CEO and co-founder of TripleLift, a programmatic technology company for native, branded, and OTT content. It was founded in 2012 and has raised $16 million to date while becoming the leading native ad platform. For those who may not know what native ad is, it's an ad that blends in user experience as people consume content. And I'm, I'm, I'm assuming most of the followers and listeners do know what native content is, but for those who don't, there you have it. Eric, welcome to the show. I hope I covered everything. I know it was a little short, so feel free to go into a little bit more detail or fill in the blanks on some of your background. It's great to be here. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So yeah, I, I guess you did a great job describing what we do at a high level. We, we run a business where we invent power and scale ads that we think integrate nicely into the user experience. We want monetization solutions that earn consumer attention as opposed to stealing it from them. And we think that ultimately is going to create a more sustainable publisher monetization ecosystem and it's in everyone's best interest. Got it. Excellent. So let's jump right into it. So how did you get started? What was, you know, what was your first job? In, in you know, out of college, my first job out of college was in AmeriCorps. Uh, I did um, legal aid for people doing their disability benefits, uh, sort of circuitously. I did undergrad and masters in computer science. Uh, erroneously applied to law school, <laughs> deferred it to do AmeriCorps, uh, then went to law school and uh, became an M and A lawyer. Um, so that alternatively is my first job. Got it. And, and what, is there anything from your time in AmeriCorps that lasted with you today? It was a, it was a really interesting experience. So yeah, I grew up in Westchester County, um, which is a relatively affluent um, part of suburb of New York City. Um, I went to private school, went to a fairly elite university. And uh, up till then, that you know, I, had, I think I had a very cloistered upbringing. And spending a year of my life, um, really making almost no money and, and not using my savings and living off of that and, and living with the people that I was representing. Um, it was a very eye-opening experience, and it, it, I think it just changed my understanding of, of how people exist, um, which has been really impactful. Where, where was it based? Chicago. Chicago. God, so you moved out at a, you know home, etc. Moved away from home, didn't see my family for a year. You know, I really wanted to... Go all in on that. Uh, so then, you know, from there to M&A lawyer. And then to, Classic transition. Exactly. And then into the tech scene. So take us a little bit through there. <laughs> well, I wish I had a better explanation. Uh, you know, I was going to law school. I was already going to law school. I, I deferred to see if I could come up with something better to do uh, in part. And, uh, you know, ended up just going to law school. Um, and law school just really funnels you into... Uh, being a lawyer at a big law firm, at least my law school did. And, you know, that's 
sort of what it's designed to do. Um, and so being in New York, uh, kind of being corporate in my disposition, uh, that's, that's just sort of where you end up. Um, at that time, private equity was really having a big boom in, in the U.S. and was really in the forefront. I thought it'd be interesting to try to get on the legal side of that. And so I went to a firm that specialized in multi-billion dollar private equity transactions. And it was pretty interesting, but it was certainly not for me. Um, and so while I was there, I, I think I was fortunate in that um, I got my go at a job where um, I realized the underlying substance matter was not personally interesting, even though there was a lot of money at the table if you become a partner there. And, and it made me really understand the trade-offs that one makes in the pursuit of money or happiness. And, um, you know, I, I uh, got to weigh that uh, and ultimately make the decision that tech was my real passion and I should go reinvest myself in tech. And so went back, um, researched all the tech companies that were hiring in New York, mm-hmm. ultimately found a startup that was doing really well, and, and that's uh, it's kind of how I got back into tech. Got it, got it. So is there anything that you failed at, you know, early on that bothered you? And, and you know, how did you overcome it? It, it could be nothing. Just, early on in the triple you No, know, early on, we'll get to triple in a few minutes, but more in terms of your career, whether it's at AmeriCorps or in law, that, you know, something that you said, okay, well, you know, I, I have no idea, this is, this is a problem. But you lost sleep over, let's say. You know, that's the definitive problem. I guess, you know, in law, you take a very different view of, of the world, which is like a very transactional um, kind of risk aversion perspective, or you try to force the risk onto whoever the counterparty is. Um, in um, AmeriCorps, it was really different, where you just deal with like a broken system, and you kind of go back and forth between being so angry that the system is broken and being so helpless about not being able to do anything about it because you're, you're a tiny cog in this massive wheel of like America where, uh, you know, my job at the time was this really confusing thing where I was getting paid by America to represent people who were being denied their disability benefits, uh, from America. Um, and every now and then I kind of get like wrapped up in that. Um, and ultimately, you know, I, I sort of solved that by writing a computer program that would uh, make my job more or less obsolete uh, so that me and five people could, could have their jobs done by, by one person. And, you know, that's one of the sort of interesting ways where I, I realized I kind of wanted to get back into tech, which is, you know, I was doing this legal thing mm-hmm. and actually spending my time working on tech. Got it. So then moving on first, so you, after your M&A law, you found a, a tech company that you w- went to work with. And so had that... Going to meeting you know your co-founders Ari and Sean. Uh, well, they were there, so okay. that was uh, that was at Nexus um, where where we met, and that was in 2010, early that year. Uh, we both started within a month of each other, or all three of us started within a month of each other, mm-hmm. and um, yeah. So we, I think, fairly quickly identified the others as mutually as as high performers. So I saw Sean as one of the smartest and most hardworking technology and customer service focused people and Ari was this amazing uh, and passionate uh, salesperson and uh, I do whatever I do and <laughs> I think they, <laughs> they like that uh, and so between the three of us you know I think um, we decided to, to try our hand at, at doing something new and 
Um, we didn't even know exactly what we were going to do when we started the business. So um, that's a whole other whole other discussion. Yeah, well, so, so there you go. So, so native advertising, right? Yeah. So you know, back then, Triplift, and there really wasn't advertising. Was advertising, right? Native advertising became a subset of okay, just like we said before. Is it's a blend, right? Yeah. It, it's it's a way to create that user experience without really you know getting them off what they're looking at or what they're viewing, right? It just blends right in. So how do you come up? Like, how do you guys decide to go after that subset of, of, ad, of ad tech? Yeah, the story is not quite so linear. Um, we started the company in January of 2012, and uh, we started it in an accelerator, the Entrepreneurs Roundtable Accelerator, mm-hmm. and uh, we pivoted four or five times during the course of that program. Uh, basically, what we did was we started and we said, Real-time bidding, which is a means of transacting uh, advertising online where you use the impression-level data to calculate the price in a, in a real-time auction context, um, was great. But banner ads were not great. And that was it. That was the entire thesis. And we would use those two data points to come up with something better. And um, at, the time, at the time we started, in particular, Pinterest was the fastest-growing website in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was an interesting data point. Tumblr, Instagram, Facebook to a lesser degree because it was already kind of established. Um, and all those sites were really blowing up in, in popularity then. Um, and we just sort of looked at them and we were like, there's no way these sites are going to uh, use banner ads. They're going to do something. They're going to do something that's um, more tailored to the user experience uh, because ultimately they're, they're really focused on creating a great user-centric experience. And so they're not going to rely on banner ads. And partly that's because of the scale uh, and partly because that consumer relationship is so important that they're focusing first on aggregation. And so why is it the case that every other publisher that's simply been around for so long or doesn't have that scale should be forced to deal with the worst user experience when they ultimately want the same outcome, which is a good user experience, a scaled user experience. They want people to come to their platform or site and, and enjoy whatever it is that they do. Um, and so then we thought, how can we make that experience scalable? Um, and so there were a lot of fits and starts along the way, um, because actually solving that problem relies on a few different sort of thoughtful trade-offs. Um, because on the one hand, you can say, well, every different website, mobile website, app, if you were to give publishers the full ability to control the entire look and feel of whatever the monetization solution is, which was our goal, that would require the buyers who, you know, the, the merits of the banner ad was that you use one banner ad and it works on every single slot that's the same size without reference to any of the idiosyncrasies of that site. But if you try to apply that to a world where um, you let the publisher control the look and feel, uh, then the buyer has to care about every different idiosyncrasy of every different publisher and make thousands of different assets or what have you. Um, or if you try to constrain the publisher with templates or something similar, then you don't give the publisher the promise of the underlying uh, tech you're trying to create, which is that full flexibility. Um, and so we had to kind of come up with this middle ground of using computer vision to enable the publishers to have that full um, control and make it so the buyers could use a single set of assets uh, while creating liquidity in the marketplace. And so actually coming up with the notion of computer vision and then building out that whole tech to support it across a a real-time bidding transaction that would, would handle billions of ad requests a day that took quite a bit of time to roll out. And so when did you start seeing traction with it, though? Um, right, so you started in 2012. You, yeah. you pivoted a, a, a few times. 
to find your sweet spot. And then, you know, to, to see that you actually were able to say, okay, this is viable, right? This is besides just investor accreditation, but more of like, okay, we see actual growth here, potential. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the investor thing is pretty funny because uh, we raised money on a different idea. And then our first board meeting after that, uh, we were like, here's the six ideas that we're thinking about. Uh, and our investors more or less were like, uh, those first five are fine. And that sixth one is pretty stupid. And that sixth one is, is what we do now. Um, <laughs> and uh, so, so that said, um, it took us years to build that out. So we didn't even go live until 2014. And to, it's, it's complicated to go live as a programmatic platform. Imagine, imagine you're starting a stock exchange selling equities, right? But nobody has ever bought or sold equity. Nobody even knows what an equity is, mm-hmm. right? So you're, you're simultaneously like, building the thing to trade the things and building a market for the thing that you want to trade. And nobody even knows that that thing exists or the merits of it or wants to trade it or has it in what they do. And that's more or less the problem that we had to deal with, which is uh, nobody understood at the time native advertising wasn't a word. And so we had to make up a word for it. And we had to, we didn't know what the performance would be because we hadn't built out the platform that would support it. And we're just like, it's probably better. Um, And so we had to, and then we had to come up with a, set of tactics to make it so that we could effectively tip the market to go with us, which means we couldn't just, we had to, we had to think about how can we create a liquid marketplace? Um, and that means how can we align supply and demand in different ways to continue to grow our platform, uh, such that, uh, we could get publishers to sign up for what we want to do. And there's like not zero effort in, in integrating triple of technology into the publisher site and get some value for it and have marketers try to run campaigns and actually deliver higher ROI for them, which means we can achieve the targets that they want to achieve. And so to actually, um, to actually achieve all of that probably took four years to do it at material scale. Got it. And, and so did you, you were the first in the space. Like, um, do you think you, you created this space and people just jumped on board? You know, I think from, from our perspective, you know, I think if you, uh, an analog might be uh, the Wright brothers <laughs> where, you know, the Wright brothers may or may not have invented flight. There's some like Australian team mm-hmm. that like also claims that they invented it um, at like roughly the same time. And two, it doesn't matter at some level, like the Red Brothers thought they did and the Australians thought they did. And so we thought we did, right? And somebody may or may not have been there first. And that's absolutely not something we care about. Um, I think as it stands today, we are the dominant native ad platform. Um, if you go into any DSP, uh, we'll be about 10 times the scale of any other platform. Um, so as it stands now, I think we've, we've got it. The job. So um, moving on to the early days. So, you raised 25, then you raised 2.1, and then you were saying, you know, pretty much you pivoted, came up with five ideas. The sixth idea, the one that you thought was the least, out of, the worst out of the out of the bunch, actually went to... That was our investors. You, no, was oh, investors, are you? <laughs> Excuse me. So um, how difficult was it going into that meeting? Um, were you were you nervous? Were you thinking, well, you know, this is like the bait and switch. I don't want to disappoint them, but we see that this is where we need to go. No, go, you know. I guess, you know, if you're an early stage investor and you're investing on the idea as a fully formed idea, then you'll probably be disappointed a lot. And so, um, you know, our early stage investor, True Ventures, uh, fantastic firm, can't recommend them highly enough. 
um, really invest in people uh, more than product. I think they need to see some like vague notion of you know your ability to build product and your understanding of the market. Um, but it's a case like every good early stage company should expect that they'll get product feedback and iterate from it. And that's that's exactly what we did. I think the hardest thing for us wasn't listening to the board or not or anything like that, but it was like that we kept coming up with ideas that would make like a million dollars and then killing those ideas because we thought they weren't good enough. And for a startup to get like a million dollars is a lot. It's great early traction. Uh, and then to be like, you know what? No. And to cancel all those orders and to like, that's that's the part that I think was was really the hardest. Got it. So, you know, so once you launch a platform, right? So, so how hard was it to get pubs on board, right? Because it's, again, a novel a novel idea. It's something that they're not used to. How hard was the sales process? It was hard. <laughs> um, so... And this is where Ari was, he was the mainly doing it? Was he was the, the, the face man or it was the three of you combined or whoever you brought on? It was various combinations of, mm-hmm. of the three of us. I think Sean and Ari to some degree early on were, were running it and uh, you know when you're at the end of the day publishers have ads for money like that's the mm-hmm. reason um, and so we can sell how great the user experience is but if we're not giving them any money then uh, it's not a great proposition <laughs> um, and so we needed a way to simultaneously onboard marketers and publishers in a way where we didn't lose too much money. Um, and so that more than the sale to any given publisher. Because if we go to a publisher and we say, this is the best user experience, you can design it, it's going to be so great, and you're going to make money, mm-hmm. it, every publisher is going to love it. And that you know explains why we work with more than half of the top 100 publishers that take third-party ads and we have a great platform. Because that's... that. Speaks for itself, but if you're like we have this great ad product and you may or may not make money, and or we say we have this great ad product and then they onboard us and they don't make money, uh, it's a different conversation. And so for us, it was an expectation setting. So we wanted to work with uh, publishers that could do it easier and that would be partners with us in the sense that they understood re- realistically where we are in our monetization um, and where we could be. And, uh, you know, we would work to prioritize them and to try to get the money as soon as we could get the money. And so, but like selling them on false promises was um, not the strategy as opposed to being direct and um, candid and hoping to get partners that were aligned with our, our mission. And, and and so once they signed up, what was the turnaround for success? Like when they, did the publishers realize, oh, there's, there's something here? Yeah, I mean... We have a very high retention. Um, we've switched. So one of the things we did earlier on our, in our platform was kind of work with the mid to long tail of publishers. Um, so there were like mommy blogs and stuff on the platform. Mm-hmm. And we don't work with any of those anymore. And so we've, we've kind of switched our focus to really be the short tail, the premium publishers. Um, and so those are, those are a little easier to work with. And we made our tech like a little bit more straightforward to integrate back then. Um, and so that was, it was just a different proposition at the time. Got it. And so, you know, growing your company, right? So you started off in 2012, but 2014, how many, how many people did you, you have? Oh man. Uh, going back uh, a bit, I know. Yeah. <laughs> but let's start here. How many employees do you have to date? We have... Uh, a little over 250 right now. Okay. And and where are they? Are, all in New York? Spread out? No, we have, um, we, we operate in five countries. So U.S., U.K., France, Germany, and Australia. And then within the U.S., we have maybe 12 offices. Um, New York, 
Chicago, LA, San Francisco, Detroit are the main ones, mm-hmm. and then there's a few with like one or two people. And so, how do you how do you find managing all that? I mean, uh, yeah. you know, do, do they report into you daily? Are you, t- you know, jumping around to offices to check in on them to keep morale? Like, well, what's your management style? Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'm a big, uh, yeah, I'm a big believer in the autonomy, accountability uh, trade off, which is um, if you as a manager can be express and direct with your expectations at every given point and any given subject about what you want from your reports and. The more you can enable them to predict how you're, how they're going to evaluate their work and your expectations of them, which requires upfront effort, uh, the more autonomy you should grant them. And so, I, you know, I more or less only have executives report to me. Um, mm-hmm. And there's a couple other people. Uh, but so generally, those people are all in New York. Um, that wasn't always the case. So I used to have our head of international report to me. Um but yeah, it's, it's complicated for sure. Um, and you have to come up with the protocols and, and this really gets to autonomy and accountability. We have a, a globally distributed sales team and they need to know how to sell what we do and how to be accountable for it. And they need to be autonomous to be able to do it to the best of their abilities. Um, and so, you know, we, we have to be all in on like e-learning and make sure that our video conferences are set up to enable people to be successful and, that people can use electronic technology, you know, like Slack or whatever. So we're, we're pretty vigilant that um, we have a really good wiki that we take a lot of time to make sure that information that people um, need to know needs to live in the wiki. And so whenever anybody asks a question, the first question that we say is, um, did you try to find that in the wiki? If, if so, um, well, then put, and you couldn't find it, you know, put it in the wiki once you find out what the answer is. Uh, and if not, go look in the wiki and then we'll talk. Got it. And, you know, so with your sales team, and I'll, I'll go back to the revenue question. Do you train them internally? you train them externally? How did you start training them, right? Did you bring someone in? Did you develop the, the processes here? You know, trial and error, bring them on, see them. Like a lot of, in ad tech, this is one thing I say in ad tech, and I, again, I've been in sales and ad tech for a long time as well. There's such a lack of training. There's yeah. the people that say, okay, let's hire you, go out, you eat what you kill, and there's no efficiency, there's no CRM for them in place. If there is, they don't use it well. So there's a, there's, and, and there's a big churn rate with salespeople. Yeah. Right? So how did you, again, when you have, again, so many people, like how, did, you know, how do you get the process put in place? Getting it put in place is really different. Uh, so, you know, when you're like uh, the 2014, 2015 triple lift is a really different company than the 2019 triple lift where, you know, the fact is because of our size, because of our distribution, we have no choice but to be really good at sales training and to be really good at CRM and to be really good at all these things that, um, you know, you said it, companies aren't very good at. And, and in fact, like our, our sales tenure is, is pretty long and that's a great virtue of, I think, a lot of the stuff that we put together. At the same time, it, there, there was some amount of friction transitioning from the kind of like shoot from the hip model of early, you know, just go out and 
get whatever you can. Mm-hmm. That, that'd be great to this structured team. And it's certainly not for everybody that transition. Some people want to work at a less structured company. Some people don't want to put stuff in Salesforce. And one person expressly quit because they don't want, they didn't want to work at a company that um, was as into Salesforce as we were becoming. And it's like, fine. You know, if that's fine. Um, and uh, so I would say, you know, CRM is one thing, but the investment in training is fundamental. Um, that that will have such an outsized impact on your business results. Um, and that means training of all sorts, like pitch training, um, knowledge training. Um, I write an essay to our team, our whole company, every single week mm-hmm. on industry matters, just educating them on stuff in the industry. And, um, you know, I think the indirect results of people just being so much more knowledgeable about what's going on um, has so many downstream positive effects. Um, and then there's the, the CRM stuff, which, you know, you just got, you just got to be vigilant about and you got to understand the intangible value of, of that approach, which, you know, is annoying when you're just getting started because it's just like, you got to sit down and like put this stuff in the thing and mm-hmm. nobody really wants to do that. So I, I want to go to your first sale, right? Yeah. You know, what was going through your mind? Like, who was your first, I, I, was it was, I, I, I should, let me rectify that. Your first I say tier one pub or tier two pub, not your mom blogger, et cetera. Like, you yeah. know, it was okay. Selling to mom blogger or some of the tier three, it's very different than selling to a major pub that has, you know, you know, hundreds of millions of, you know, pages, et cetera. And, and, you know, how long did it take? Um, and what was like through your mind? Like, was that the point where you said, okay, this is, we see this as a really viable, you know, business model. And this is what we're going to just, put on double down, triple down and go full force into it? Or, you know, were you still, you know, waiting to see what was going to happen? Yeah. Our first deal was between this website called Food Gawker, which was sort of like a Pinterest clone at the time. Pinterest clones were super hot um, for food. And it was, that was on the supply side. And Chobani was the marketer on the demand side. And um, that was the very first campaign that went live on our platform. And we had no idea how it was going to perform. And so, you know, the CEO of Food Gawker got along with one of my co-founders really mm-hmm. well. And, you know, they had a good shared vision there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that campaign just crushed it. It was such a good feeling because we had put so much time into this business and so much time just like laying the foundation. And we didn't actually know how it was going to work in the wild. Like, you just can't test that if you're building like a whole new thing like we were um, so it was, that was a good feeling. <laughs> you know, so you, you haven't raised a lot of money to date. Yeah. I think it's like 16 million, right? Which is really small for a company that's been around since 2012. I mean, so, I mean, really small. I mean, I think video just raised 70 million and they, they have a hundred and, you know, your success, you're, you're extremely successful to date in this space, right? Like you're saying, like you said, and you're, you're pretty much the top tier in native ad, right? Mm-hmm. So scaling, right? Hiring company culture, how, you know, take me through that a bit, you know, hiring, which is one of the, the key is, you know, to any company that's going to scale is how do you find the right people? Um, you know, is there certain, you know, uh, interview skills or, 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 you know, secrets that you use when you're interviewing people? Is there a certain type of personality that you're looking for? So we don't look for personalities. We look for um, different companies use the word values in different contexts. And uh, 
we use it for behaviors or how somebody acts. And so we undertook this exercise a long time ago that was basically like, if we're going to be a successful company in the three to five year horizon, given the market that we're in and how companies operate, or a failed company in three to five years, or, you know, what are the behaviors that are going to create a more or less likely um, set of outcomes for the positive behavior or positive outcomes? So um, specifically in ad tech, what behaviors are going to lead us to be successful versus what are going to lead us to be failures? Um, and then start to work on how can we integrate that into the behaviors that uh, we want to interview for. And so, you know, there's like obvious things like don't punch your manager in the face. Um, <laughs> and we certainly try to hire for that. Um, but then the not obvious things. And so, you know, that's somebody that treats their job as a craft and who has this drive to, um, to really uh, improve every single day um, with the same kind of dedication as a, as a potter um, or somebody who wants to win and is so competitive, but it's so competitive in the context of being positive internally. And so, you know, people come here and they are continually shocked at how uh, people willingly collaborate, at how nice everyone is, at how everyone works together towards a common goal, um, which is still crushing our competitors, but in a way that's positive internally. Um, and that, you know, people aren't fighting for credit and backstabbing and we don't tolerate any of that like people start doing that and they're out um and so you know i think i think things like that and really articulating it in in no uncertain terms has been uh, very valuable for us and what's a company culture when you have so many offices and people around is there are you trying to adapt a certain culture across all the offices and does it start with you and our you know and it trickled down you know the, you know because again you guys i'm sure everybody's looking up to you yeah i mean well the, the fact is like um, if you have values and the executive team doesn't live them, then nobody's going to believe them. And so the only way they become real is if they're in fact real. Like they can't, they can't be fake, they can't be forced, and it can't be just some garbage that you expect the um, rank and file to do without kind of trickling down. Um, and so they, they are real. You know, I, I think um, everyone believes that they're important. Um, you know, it's not necessarily something that on a day to day you're like, how do I improve my craft? You are just somebody that's been hired because you be- behave this way. And it's also the case that we ask about these. So these are explicitly part of our interview process, our promotion process, you know, termination process, um, uh, reviews. Uh, it, it values are these specific questions. We have different questions that like get at the company values. Um, and it is the case that the people that live these values move up and the people that don't, don't. don't. Oh. And what do you want for your employees, right? So, you know, you, you're building great company culture. You guys are growing. You know, the ad tech market is consolidating, right? Yeah. I mean, what do you want for your employees? I mean, are you looking for your, you know, again, and that's retention-wise as well, right? So are you looking for them to stay with you for a while? Are you looking for them to, you know, move up? together you know as you guys grow then your promotion from internally and then you know what what are you looking to 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 give them you know i I think one of the best things for us is when an employee leaves the company and then they come back to the company and we've been around long enough that um you know it used to be the case when we were like two to three years old and someone would leave the company i'd be like well goodbye for the rest of my life (laughs) and uh 
And now we have people coming back all the time. And you're okay with it? I love it. It's great. I think it's one of the best signals. It's like they've gone out, they've tried, you know. Uh, I'm happy for people to, um, if they get, look, we're not always going to be the number one. Google has more money than we do. And so if Google wants to pay something more, they can do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, we haven't raised much money. And that means we have to be, and we're profitable. Mm-hmm. We're profitable over the lifetime of our company, not just profitable on any given year. And what that means is we have to be thoughtful and prudent. And we are transparent with our employees about that. We're like, you know, I, I don't know that you'll find too many companies that are more transparent with their uh, employees about like how much money we make on any given day and how profitable we are, like blah, blah, blah. And so um, uh, people understand, we're, like, ad tech is tough. We don't want to raise more money. Nobody here wants to raise more money. And so sometimes that means hard decisions. But if it means somebody gets a great job, gets training, can move up in their career and they can come back as a as a higher role where we, we do have that budget, great, you know, let's do it. Um, so um, I, I don't get upset when people leave anymore. I mean, there was, you mentioned something in there that I want to just touch upon. Decision making. What yeah. was the most difficult decision you had as CEO so far? Is there, if there's one or if there's one or two, I, that you, was it, you know, it, was it a question of employees? Was it a question of pub, you know, D, you know, was it, you know, DSP? I mean, what was the, uh, you know, something that you really found, okay, wow, that this is much harder than I anticipated it would be. That happens on a weekly basis. You know, I think, I think without answering your question directly, um, the fact is that uh, there's no training. Like every decision that makes its way to you is just sort of like the Supreme Court, where everything that makes its way up to the Supreme Court is like a question that doesn't have an easy answer. And um, that's the only reason it got there is because like there's no easy precedent to look at, or it's murky, or it's unclear. And the same, it's the same thing here, where. Um, Every question is murky and you don't have perfect data and you have to make a lot of decisions with imperfect data and you have to get comfortable with that. And as a lawyer, you're like, your instincts train you to like fight that um, or to like push the risk on somebody else. And, and a lot of startup, a lot of being a startup is like, you're the weaker company in negotiations. And uh, so you have to, you have to take on that additional risk. You have to live with that additional comfort and you have to like come up with that that intangible balance of risk that's appropriate for your company to grow. Um, and so, you know, there's a million decisions like that that you really have to internalize um, and get comfortable with. Got it. And so, you know, how has TripLift evolved from, you know, earliest now, you know, in terms of, you know, head of bidding, AI, machine learning? I mean, you know, again, technology now is a lot better than it was when you guys started and launched. So, you know, just walk a little bit, you know, through, you know, how it's evolved to date. Yeah, I think, um, so, we take a very conservative approach with technology, which is like, you know, we don't use some newfangled tech because it's the talk of the town. Our core infrastructure is based on Java, which is one of the oldest languages out there because it's stable, robust, and has a huge uh, infrastructure of support and people that can program in it. Um, and we're not necessarily going to use the blockchain um, because, you know, it's great to talk about the blockchain, but, like, and, and there are companies that just, like, spooled up to say blockchain 
And like, Lord only knows why. We don't, we don't do that. We say, you know, what's the right technology to solve this particular problem? And it may be a new one and it may be an old one. And uh, I'm not necessarily an ardent believer in the notion that um, the newest tech is always better than older tech. Um, and it's often the case that newer tech is suited to the cheaper nature of distributed, modern, more powerful, cheaper uh, CPUs, which is fine. Um, but it's not necessarily the case that like some algorithm that was just come out, that just came out with is, is better than an older mm-hmm. algorithm or that by virtue of being new, it's in some way better. And so uh, we would like to evaluate on the merits, not on the newness. Got it. And, you know, what separates, you, you know, you guys from the rest of the ad tech sector? I mean, do you see a differentiation? Do you see yourselves separating, pulling away? I think there's there's a few good ad tech companies out there. Um, and um, so I, I think there's, there's several that are going to be winners. Uh, I think something that, you know, we do that's different is we don't try to focus on monster scale um, so Abnexus, for example, had a, had a great outcome, mm-hmm. a great company, and, and I have tremendous respect for them. But they were just focusing on a different business. They were focusing on uh, scale, scale, scale for commodity ad formats. And we are some scale for bespoke ad formats that achieve a specific goal. So we are a mission-driven company, um, effective user-centric publisher monetization wherever users consume content. That's, that's what we are. And we're not dogmatic about the tactics that we use or how we implement that or when we are dogmatic about the fact that our um, products and services meet our company mission. And that leads us to really new and interesting opportunities. I think we're, um, we're really open. You know, one of our values is really like being comfortable with change more or less. And uh, we are. Um, And so we, we try a lot of things. Some of them work, some of them fail. And we're very comfortable with that. And I think that's led us to be in a good position um, so, you know, I, I think we are very synergistic also, even with a company like Google that doesn't necessarily focus on the more bespoke things. And so we have a great relationship with them. What do you think is in store for the ad tech sector, you know, this year, 2019 and 2020? I mean, we've already seen some, you know, consolidation. Polymorph, I think, was just acquired by Walmart recently. Um, and that Polymorph, that's on the small side. But do you see more consolidation happen? Because, again, a lot of people are... You know, native is, is staying its course, right? People like, again, the whole concept of native fits, right? It's, it's blending in the content, the, keeping the user in the experience, et cetera. Um, but other companies are definitely, you know, going to, going to be hurting. <laughs> and do you see, do you see that this consolidation? Do you see more, you know, it's going to attrition in, the, in this space? I think, like everything, um, ad tech has waves. And so there's probably, you know, people can um, disagree on the precise terminology, but let's call it ad tech 1.0, which was like the ad networks and, you know, ad ECN, whatever. Um, ad tech 2.0, which is the kind of exchanges and that model. Um, and I think Triple Lift is sort of at the um, precipice of ad tech 3.0 that is just a new wave of companies that think about the ecosystem differently and attack different sets of problems. And so, you know, you have um, companies that delivered ad tech 2.0 value um, and, and they'll still be a value for that in some, to some degree for, for some period of time. Mm-hmm. But I don't know where that, that that's where the value prop of the future is going to come from. 
uh, you're going to see the uh, convergence of MarTech and AdTech. And honestly, I don't even understand totally why those are considered as separate as they are. Um, they sh- should be more aligned. Um, and uh, you're going to see, especially like you think about stocking fees to pay to be in the uh, aisle in Walmart versus paying to advertise on walmart.com. Those are from two totally separate budgets. One is marketing and the other is advertising, mm-hmm. but they're the same net result. Uh, just one is digital and one is market in person. Yeah. Um, and so I think there's going to be a lot more convergence in those things uh, and solutions that can help. Um, you know, data is like this really weird thing. It's at this inflection point where it's both super valuable and maybe on the decline. Um, so you're going to see companies like Google and Facebook, uh, I think incre- there's no way for me that Facebook and Google are as powerful in five years as they are now. I think they'll get a little bit more powerful and then Europe is kind of going to be like, no, thank you. Um, and then they're going to have decreasing power. Like It's already the case that uh, they're being restricted in a number of ways. Google's lost how many anti-competitive suits in Europe. Facebook is on the verge of you know getting regulated in a variety of ways in Europe. Um, so I, I think we'll see that more and more. And, and how that plays itself out in the... Um, in the ad tech space, I think is to be determined. Got it. Okay, so we're going to move on and wind down now. So, what do you want to be when you were fifteen? Shifting, you know, totally, totally different direction here. You know, <laughs> yes. we're going back. You know, fifteen years old. Did you know you wanted to be a lawyer? Did you want to go into tech? Did you want like what did you want to be? So um, this is cute. I had my mom has uh, acute glaucoma, um, which is just like an eye disease, mm-hmm. and um, she always, she always had to like go through these procedures and stuff, and it was, it was just like kind of gnarly for her. Um, and it really bothered me. And so I kind of grew up wanting to be an eye doctor. Um, and then I realized how squeamish I was. <laughs> <laughs> and I stopped wanting to be an eye doctor. <laughs> but I think around 15, I was still in the eye doctor phase. Got it. Is there a habit that you do on a daily basis that keeps you, you know, focused? Um, hmm. Well, there's probably two answers to that. One is uh, I've tried to come up with like a, a system. You know, I think everybody's always thinking about like how can they keep their to-dos organized and um, you know manage their time better and whatever. Mm. And I've thought about it for years, like my whole life. And ultimately, I think it's about, can you come up with a system that works for you and stick with it more than like, are you using some particular application or like whatever Twitter people say is the newest hotness. And so really, it's about for me, I've been really trying to be consistent about trying to be thoughtful about the short and long term things that I need to be doing. And the others, you know, I have two kids and just trying to keep perspective on, on what that means and uh, you know, making sure that, that I have the right family uh, allocation. Mm-hmm. Got that. Um, is there anything on the productivity side that you suggest to other founders that they should be doing software or, you know? I will say that um, I moved. So I think, personally, no offense to these guys, I think Slack is like the worst. Uh, I think <laughs> I, <call you. laughs> I think it's like uh, such a net drain for productivity um, in so many different ways. Uh so I try to shut it down during, during work. Um, I try to shut down everything. Like I think this, the workplace has just become this stream of distractions that keeps you from doing actual work. And 
um, the more you can kind of compartmentalize the sets of distractions that you face and create like a, a channel for doing real substantive work in a, in a way where you're actually impactful and thoughtful. Like every modern technology thing, Slack being the most like exemplary here is designed to get you out of that space. Um, and uh, I would prefer if the company were all email and no Slack so that it's, you know, the expectation of some sort of synchronous response was, was mitigated. Uh, to that end, you know, I've moved uh, a lot of my meet, meeting stuff to an iPad with a pencil, which you can see right here. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't install email. I didn't install Slack. I didn't install any of that junk on here. Um, so, you know, in my one-on-ones, uh, I'm all presence, like really focused on the person, yeah. really thoughtful. Um, I'll sit down and just write by hand or in, in iPad my thoughts on a subject and then, you know, transcribe it or have my assistant transcribe it later. And, uh, you know, I, I think that's so much better. Like, um, one thing lawyers have right is that they'll print out documents and read it uh, and edit it in paper versus editing in the computer. And I think... You know, when you do that, you'll find the results are orders of magnitude better. Um, and, and people have just gotten away from that. Excellent. So I want to thank you uh, for taking time. And for my listeners, make sure you uh, like us on uh, iTunes and Google, on uh, Spotify and all the other ones as well. Eric, it's been great. I appreciate your time. And thank you so much. Thank you. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for listening to C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.